0: Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark.
1: Welcome to Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark as usual. And no, this is not episode 300, it is episode 301, what the? Well, that is because we had a few technical difficulties and we're saving up. So this is actually episode 301, presented before episode 300, and we will get into it now. And how are you, Mark?
0: Wonderful, Brendan. It's it's a bit blowy where I am today. So um, I, I hope the noise of the wind doesn't interfere with our high quality sound today, but um, otherwise I'm awesome. <laughs>
1: I'll do my best to correct it in post-production, but I don't think I can filter out your chirping birds in the background there, Mark. Is that one of your birds or
0: you've got the window open? No, the The windows are all closed, but they're just a... We've got sparrows nesting in behind... I, I grow elk horns and stag horns and on the boards... Behind them, the the uh, sparrows seem to find the best spot to nest. So there's a bunch of baby sparrows, and the parents are squawking all about them, and they don't stop. So I apologise to our listeners for the mellifluous tones of the uh, small brown birds. It gives a bit of ambience, Mark. That's what. That's why
1: I'd put it. Um, in other words, it's very annoying. But <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a problem. Um, so. Yeah, welcome to the podcast. A shout out to one of our sponsors, Microchips Australia, Doug and the team. And I know um, some of Doug's um, group Ah, there's been some concern with wet weather, Mark, and the, and the floods we've recently had in Australia. So um, all the best to them, although this episode may be dropping a little bit later after all the floods have disappeared and we're in a drought. Who knows? But, um, yeah, um, our thoughts are with them. And, yeah, Microchips Australia, um, fantastic selection of microchips, handheld readers, companion animal products, and they're involved with research as well, including... Well, ID and equipment access- accessories for aquaculture, Mark. Um, so they've 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 um, developed some pretty interesting products here, Mark. And I was just, I'm just looking through the website at the moment, and there's a quite nifty fish reader with integrated scale there and a circular antenna, uh, 600 mil diameter antenna, Mark, which I presume you can put into a little system where you've got water flowing through and it will scan the fish as they're heading through that mark. So they, they've
0: they thunk of everything, haven't they, Mark? I always thought that um, that it might be nice to have one of those types of antenna in the door of a veterinary hospital and then each time the animal came in... No matter how new your receptionist, she would be able to go, "Oh, hi, Mrs. Jones, and how is Fluffy today?" Yes. yes, I think that's a good idea. Otherwise, it'll um, be beeping wildly
1: if they've got some concealed firearms, mark, <laughs> and the doors automatic, the-, the shutters automatically come down within a couple of seconds and, and um, block it. Although we're we're lucky enough that we don't. Touchwood would have that sort of issue here
0: um, often in Australia, do we? If we had anything like it, Microchips Australia would help us with it.
1: They'll solve it. They'll have <laughs> some sort of product uh, that they um, – we'll have to get Doug on to that. Uh, let's see what he can supply us with and Doug on – more than willing to test out um, any sort of system you have there um, so there we go um, and even with wildlife I mean they've they've been involved with scanning everything from platypus to, to wombats in the field and all sorts so good stuff so there we go um, I think with that mark I've, I've got I haven't got a specific review of any product um, today mark um, I suppose I could um, chat a little bit about the camera but I'm not going to. Um, I've been <laughs> fiddling with a, a, a few things. With I, my have
0: little- got, I, I have got one question. Um, yeah. Your camera, yes. um, uh, the Olympus, has uh, the focused shift mode, doesn't it? So for our listeners who might not be familiar with some of the intricacies of uh, cameras, uh, both Brendan and I are a little bit prone to getting some macro photos and... Uh, the Olympus model you have, I think, has an in-camera mode which fires F- off focus stacking. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well,
1: I did. Yeah, I did send you a picture of a just a a B, didn't I? That yes. I took recently. That one isn't focus stacked. That's just a once off. <laughs> believe that, it or not, that's criminally good. Yeah, I was just trying to test um, the. Uh, I just shoved the macro lens on and I had a couple of bees sitting in the backyard on a couple of little branches, Um, trying to get some pollen um, going and uh, yeah, I just fired off a couple of shots there because I haven't really, I must admit, I haven't really played around with the macro that much and uh, I've got to do it. I I purchased a a, uh, a diffuser, Mark, um, specific for, for the, and I know you use a flash and a diffuser for your macro shots and I... I've got it there, and I paid a reasonable amount <laughs> for the diffuser. <laughs> I haven't used the thing yet. No, so you've got, got to. Got, got to get it. out there and use it. So must get off my backside and do that.
0: So, yeah, there we oh, go. I'll be that, – that specifically the give the, the in-camera focus stack I, system. I'm keen to hear how it goes, Brendan. I will – Get back to you. My people <laughs> will talk to your people, and
1: we will sort something out there, Mark. Yes. So that's our review. Um, the Owen <laughs> Systems OM um, One camera. So they it's no longer owned by Olympus. They sold it off. So it's OM I'm System, sure. Mark. Um, even though it's the, um, has an Olympus. You the, and I will still play with on that yeah, Olympus, Olympus camera. I'm sure we will. So what have we got for news, Mark? We've got an. In, you've
0: got a very interest in. Um, well, we've only got one news story, um, but it is a bit of a fascinating one. It um, uh, it it has to do well. It has to do with the potential treatments for epilepsy, um, and there's a particular case, Cronut. I love that name. Cronut is a, a sea lion um, at the Six Flags Discovery Kingdom in California, um, who had it used epilepsy. To be no,
1: it, it is now. Num nuts now uh, <laughs> since he was de sexed here.
0: Of course, of course he is. Um nuts, however <laughs> however his current status, um, was a a, uh, um, a a wonderful captive sea lion who had um, uh, worsening uh, cases of epilepsy. The uncontrolled electrical activity of his brain was setting off tremors and confusion. Um, he was uh, unable to eat. Um, and I would imagine that while we as small animal practitioners uh, take a, um, oh, I, I, we worry about it, but a prosaic view, I would have thought, most epileptics, uh, uh, most epileptic animals are going to survive and we just need to manage their seizures with anticonvulsant therapy. I would imagine that an animal that swims a significant amount of the time would be at uh, a, a marked increased risk of <laughs> drowning as they have a seizure. So um, he did lose a lot of body weight over a very quick period of time um, and, um, and he was deteriorating. So in October 2020... Um, Cronut went and un- underwent an experimental brain surgery that involved transplanting healthy pig neurons into his damaged hippocampus. Um, and uh, at least up until twenty twenty one, when this article was published, Cronut um, was seizure free in the week. In the week, the week before the surgery, no, the day before the surgery, um, he'd had three seizures, um, and. Um, and since the in the year after the surgery, he's had none. So, um, the the stabilising effect of the healthy pig neurons on the electrical activity of his brain is um, is you know supposed to have um, treated his. Uh, his epilepsy and now Mark, before you go the
1: next step, let's just backtrack a tiny bit. His that they worked out that his brain was damaged and likely caused the seizures to occur from exposure to domoic acid mark, a neurotoxin produced ah. by algae and bacterial blooms and the um, toxin accumulates in small fish and shellfish that sea lions and other marine mammals eat. And researchers determined that exposure to to domoic acid in sea lions causes brain damage similar to found in humans with temporal lobe epilepsy. So that's um, how... I think he um, acquired the epilepsy there, Mark, and, That's really um I think you, yeah. and I think you're going to talk about the the, the high tech um, surgical <laughs> suite and and um,
0: the method of um, doing the transplant, Mark. So. Go well ahead. it was it was a strange paradox of you know 18 person team met outside the <laughs> animal hospital um but scientists that <laughs> was uh, sedate, sedated on a gurney in the parking lot um and um and it's, it's from what I can ascertain um they largely uh, they it was a five hour procedure um And, uh, but essentially, most of the time, from what I can see, was, uh, carefully dissecting the muscles of over the skull, uh, getting through the skull and then, um, injecting the pig cells into, um, the hippocampus. They used, uh, MRIs and x rays to sort of get an idea of where they had to go. I don't think they actually used those procedures during the, the The surgery, I think, once they in the parking lot, <laughs> once they got to that
1: point, they wheeled um, in a portable um, MRI. Did they?
0: Oh, yeah. I don't, I'm not sure no, what, no. what the. I think they've just <laughs> they just they just shoved a needle yeah. in his head and injected. So, so and they did note that um, on the MRIs that uh, which part, some part of his hippocampus, the left side was markedly shrunken and and. Um, a different shape the left side of his hippocampus was scarred and shrunken they say um so they were specifically aiming for a location um so yeah it'd be it's fascinating to think i i did say to you when we were discussing um the article before we came on air that um i, I don't know i'd be very interested once poor cronut ends his time with us and has a post-mortem whether there were significant scars from the needle that might have limited electric activity or was it really the the, uh, the cells from the pig that solved the problem? It would be very interesting to know. Oh, so you think they're telling porky's fuck? Oh, God.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, sometimes I wonder how long uh, we have to, like, <laughs> you're The setup for some of your puns. I wonder how long they, they've they been stewing for. But, but yes, I suspect... Well, I don't think they're telling porkies, uh, but I do think that um, there are multiple explanations um, that might not necessarily involve the ability of embryonic uh, early-stage m- inhibitory neurons... Um, ameliorating seizures but look i may be wrong and it may well be that um there's a rolling so, process inject- so how do you how do you
1: think this is working mark because I'm, I'm just reading one of the paragraphs here is says the procedure can't reverse damage already done to cronut's brain but it could prevent further damage by preventing subsequent seizures
0: so what do you reckon it's doing injecting these cells in there well, I'm making this up on the spot. Um, I reckon that if it is working, then it just is creating a field of stable uh, cell membranes that um, the the actual nature of the lesion has to be something where electrical activity becomes unstable and then is propagated by faulty cell membranes all over the brain. Um, and And I think that, Quite possibly, these cells could work to provide a field of stable cell membranes which fail to allow the propagation and, and expansion and positive feedback of electrical activity that results in a seizure. Or,
1: as Mark's theory says, um, injecting something in there has ablated all the cells and stopped the seizures. One of two possibilities, of course.
0: <laughs> interesting article though mark um, so bit- well it's interesting because I think um, if there is any you know there's a whole range of of uh, uh, central nervous system ailments that um, we might be seeing in the future injections of pig neurons going and there's talk in this article of uh, of the potential for recalcitrant uh, Non-responsive human epileptics to be considered for treatment in years to come, if the if the mechanism is um, more well understood. So, and maybe even I, I think already some some uh, Alzheimer's patients are receiving injections of of neurons. So this may be the way of the future, Brendan. I worry though with these embryonic uh, stem cell type yes. interventions. They're just a bit of a panacea, aren't they? It's just like we found these cells that fix everything. We're going to inject them near the lesion and, you know, fill in the blank. You will have no more arthritis. You'll have no more heart disease. You'll have no more epilepsy. I I, I want to know more about how the mechanism actually works. Yes.
1: You're a very inquisitive person, aren't you, Mark? Um, (laughs) I agree. I agree. So, yeah, interesting news story, Mark. Well, let's jump straight into your five top. Mark's five top reasons that birds are adapted to flight and therefore make birds the best patients, Mark. Um, that's a very, very uplifting, uh, hopefully, five, um, five top reasons. Mark, so what's reason number one?
0: Well, I th- need no reason for birds to be counted as the best veterinary patients, but I thought it would be good to have some um, as an explanation. So the first one is uh, their air sacs. And air sacs are divided into a couple in this uh, short list. But air sacs are wonderful because they emphasize radiographic contrast. And when one of the things that I do when I am doing diagnostic work on birds is very often taking radiographs, whether it's to have a look at the musculoskeletal system or assess the respiratory tract or or have a look at uh, the gastrointestinal tract or reproductive tract. Radiographs are useful in all those situations, and all the more useful because contrast is so high and you can make so many useful determinants as a consequence. Do you think the
1: opposite might be true, Mark, that it makes it a bit more of a challenge to um, interpret things radiographically or not um, for for people who are not used to um, looking at bird radiographs?
0: No, I, I think um, the the high contrast makes it easy for everyone, Brendan. <laughs> I do think that it's a very... I do find, in my experience, that uh, crop-needling the birds with some contrast medium an hour or two before you take the radiographs does a good job of highlighting some of the less contrast-rich gastrointestinal content. So you might have a big radio-opaque grey hazy area in the abdomen um, and you can't tell whether it's the spleen or the liver or whatever because the rest of the bird is so uh, well contrasted that's probably the one area that's a problem so um, i would give them a little bit of contrast medium for gastrointestinal things but outside of that the high contrast means you can get great definition for much of the anatomy and that helps the diagnostic process fantastic Point number two, Mark, top reason. Well, this is this is one for you, Brendan, because I know you're always looking for ways to make practice more economic. And if you can use one enclosure for two types of animals, then that's going to save you some money. And the high metabolic rate of birds, that is being an adaptation to flight. They've got a. You know, burn things fast to be able to fly, um, it means they have a higher body temperature than most of our mammals. So, we would normally think that uh, chickens, budgerigars, they're going to be in the range of 41 to 42 degrees Celsius, um, which is significantly higher than. Um, you know, they're now uh, rabbits or ferrets or guinea pigs. Um, and it means that you can keep them in your reptile enclosures. If you have a hospital cage that's suitable for reptiles with a hot spot, um, then that's the perfect environment to whack your sick bird in because, as we well know, they're very closely related to reptiles. But in this situation, the heated enclosure, uh, helps support that higher temperature and saves you some money in the hospital, Brendan win win number 3 mark number 3 is well it's a little bit of a um you know a reason that you know I need to go to the gym more and I need to be I'm always looking for for ways to make physical exercise uh, more comfortable and one of the things about birds is that for their size they don't weigh nearly as much so I always relate to uh, a case when I had a student who was at the hospital when we had a pelican come in and it was a big adult male pelican. And um, and I asked the wonderful young woman to give me an estimate of the weight of the animal and using her experience with dogs. She came up with the number of 20 or 25 kilos that a pelican would roughly be the same size as a 20 or 25 kilo dog. Um, but of course, They ate that particular bird only weighed 5.5 kilos. So, as a consequence, that lightness makes them easy to handle, means that you don't have to use as much medication, um, and once again, is a saving to the practice. So, birds are very light for their size. It does mean, however, Brendan, that you have to weigh them because those ferret feathers conceal a huge amount of change underneath. So your pelican might be anything from four to six kilos, um, and you have to weigh them so that you're getting a very accurate dose of your medication into them.
1: Yes, we don't want to make a big mistake there, Mark, with that seemingly very heavy animal that is not. Um, How much food can a pelican belly can, Mark? (laughs) We won't go there. So, yes, they're very light for their size, but it's... Easy on the back, isn't it?
0: So, number four, Mark. Number four is back to the air sacs. Um, And this is one I really love for emergency situations, Brendan, because there's no diaphragm, because the air sacs extend down between the internal organs of the abdomen. um, You can ventilate a bird through a hole in the body wall. You can uh, establish an air sac cannula um, in the fossa, the the, uh, uh, um, uh, paralumbar fossa, um, and you can keep the patient alive even if their uh, trachea is completely obstructed. And this is the perfect situation to establish an air sac cannula. If a bird pops a seed into that windpipe and is having real trouble breathing, knock them out, get them relaxed, keep them very well oxygenated and get them to breathe through a hole in their body wall. Not many of our other patients have that extra access point for such a situation, Brendan.
1: That is a bonus, isn't it? I wish um, we had that. Um, It would save a lot more people if you could just shove that hole in there wherever and away we go. Number five, Mark, what is your final or close to final top reason adapt adaptation to flight makes birds
0: the best patients? Well, because they fly, because they need to fly to escape from their predators, they make red cells very, very quickly. And this is, you know, one of my favourites because it, it really helps with my surgical technique, Brendan, because the birds might bleed quite a lot when I do surgery on them, but I'm comforted in the knowledge that they will, with only two or three days uh, recovery, return their PCV to normal. Whereas maybe one of our rabbits or guinea pigs that had a bit of an intraoperative bleed, they might take four, maybe even six weeks to have their PCV return to normal. So our surgical patients that are avian, they are much insulated from the risks of hemorrhage by the fact that they make red cells so quickly, Brendan, and that's a huge comfort to a surgeon like me <laughs> sounds
1: like you enjoy um all the all the pluses of um dealing with birds because they're so easy to and they and you don't kill any do you because they're so you
0: know Well, i wouldn't so... go that far i wouldn't go <laughs> quite that far but but i do uh, appreciate like you i'm a Try to be a glass-half-full sort of person and look at the uh, positives, and certainly that blood is one. And here's the bonus, Brendan. Um, One of the things that I really love about working with birds is that You will be the only person, the only veterinarian in your practice, if you're the one who does the birds, who gets to have patients that come in every colour of the rainbow. Those adaptations for flight, the feathers, uh, they come in a myriad of colours. And unless you have a groomer who deals with ferrets and rabbits and does those artistic um, coloured food colouring dyes... Your patients are going to be the only ones, the avian patients are going to be the only ones that come in every colour of the rainbow. What about reptiles, Mark?
1: There's a reasonable variety of colours in reptiles. (laughs) Now I'm going to have to go (laughs) and do some research. (laughs) Um, And related to that,
0: what is it with (laughs) veterinary staff and colour in their hair, Mark? I reckon there's a study in that, Brendan. I reckon there is definitely a higher incidence of uh, veterinary practice staff hair dye coloration than in the general population. We'll we'll have to get the numbers onto it. We'll get back
1: to you, and we might have an article similar to um, the news article. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yes, excellent, Mark. So. Um, Sounds like you enjoy treating birds. Funny about that. Uh, Surprise, surprise. Well, I think we'll throw one in for some of the other species, Mark, non-avian in the future, top five or top ten reasons for treating particular groups of of animals. Um, And until then, I think we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Talk to you then. Bye.